0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer on board today. Karen Kadrowski with us again, professor and of political science and director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University in Ames. Karen, welcome back.
1: Glad to be here, Ben.
0: Wayne Moyer is with us as well, professor of political science at Grinnell College. Hello, Wayne. Hi, Ben. So much to get to uh, our packed um, politics days. We'll see how much we do get to. We want to uh, talk certainly about the Mayorkas impeachment uh, uh, and also the latest news of the Democrats uh, picking up a U.S. House seat. Uh, in, in New York. Uh, later, we'll go abroad and rely on uh, Wayne's uh, foreign policy expertise to talk about uh, the Middle East and uh, reflections on the two year anniversary of the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine. Um, plenty more uh, as well. But first of all, I'd like to f- focus on the Iowa legislature and uh, more specifically, Karen Kudrowski, with your expertise in in gender. Uh, I'd like to get your comments on, um, well, this is funnel week to, to kind of make sure we're aware of that. Funnel week at the Iowa State Capitol means most bills must be approved by a committee by the end of this week to remain eligible for consideration. Much more on that, I'm sure, when we have our News Buzz Friday later this week. But, Karen, uh, I wanted to ask about um, Governor Reynolds introducing a controversial bill earlier this month The legislation adds new definitions of man and woman to state law, as well as requiring changes to birth certificates and government collection of data, Um, widespread condemnation from LGBTQ and uh, rights advocacy groups, They brand it as erasure of transgender and non binary people and a violation of uh, privacy. Now, Republicans have fast tracked this a uh, proposal by the governor last week, advancing it through subcommittee and committee hearings over the course of an afternoon, uh, over the objections of Democrats and a- advocates. Um, I-, I wanted to—then to, on Monday of this week, we had a couple dozen Iowans speak on Monday night in an hour-long public hearing on the bill. Um, outside the Capitol Rotunda, hundreds of protesters— with LGBTQ and transgender rights flags shouting, cheering throughout the hearing. Karen, I'd love to see, with your position and expertise, how you see this controversy developing.
1: Yeah, boy, there's um, certainly lots of gendered uh, things coming up in the state legislature um, this session, and this is just, you know, one of the most extreme. I think um, one of the things to be thinking or to keep in mind is that, you know, our best estimate is that transgendered people are about 1% of the population. So we are not talking about a huge number of individuals. And yet, you know, they seem to be have been turned symbolically into something of a threat. And, um, and so they are the, the latest salvo in our ongoing culture wars. Um, you know, that started with abortion and have now moved on to, you know, a whole variety of other things, often targeting the LGBTQ community. I do think that this uh, proposed legislation has some real constitutional problems. Um, to say that separate is not inherently unequal kind of flies in the face with the frame, of, you know, the famous language that was in Brown versus Board of Education, um, and then also to to simply to be um, disclosing individuals' private medical information in very public ways uh, does open up individuals to um, harassment and assault and discrimination. Uh, I think one of the most um, distressing parts of the legislation, which would have included um, this information on a driver's license, you know, which is used to, you know, purchase alcohol or as identification for a whole number of things, uh, was particularly problematic. Um, And uh, I, it will be, I am sure that if this legislation is passed, it will face some pretty serious legal challenges.
0: Yeah, is it, Karen? Do you know if Iowa is an outlier here, or other, I assume, Republican states, advancing uh, similar measures? Uh,
1: I have not heard something uh, quite like this, um, but. You know, a lot of this state legislation that comes out is really, really similar because, you know, it originates from an interest group that the, that a number of, um, legislators are ally- allied with. And so they propose model legislation that then gets um, introduced. So even if there's nothing, you know, even if there is not anything in other state legislatures, I would expect that, you know, sympathetic legislators elsewhere are watching what's going on in Iowa and may take their cues from Iowa as well.
0: Karen, to you on this other one, this the um, con- uh, birth control measure, Kim Reynolds' proposal here again, allowing over-the-counter birth control advanced through a subcommittee on Monday, uh, despite pushback from some conservative advocates. Uh, yeah,
1: the, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Your view <laughs> well, on this, because this is this is this is, <laughs> this is this is different. She's being hit by the conservatives in her party. For yeah, this.
1: exactly. So there are some um, abortifacients. Um, over-the-counter birth control, like you know, Plan B or something that um, that opo- uh, opponents to abortion um, oppose because of the way that they end pregnancy. They don't prevent pre- pregnancy; they end pregnancy. Um, that would be like Plan B, for example. Um, and you know what that does is it doesn't prevent conception; it just prevents implantation of the em- um, embryo. Having said that, too, also um, a number of social conservatives are also reluctant to, to do this because they they feel that if birth control is too accessible, especially to teenagers, that this will lead to increased promiscuity and that parents... Should um, you know, be involved in decisions like whether or not their teenagers are using birth control, and um, and by having it available over the counter, um, that that some people believes could you know undermine parental authority.
0: Mm-hmm. One other bit uh, at the legislature, um, away from uh, gender politics, I guess, uh, two Democrats uh, walked out of a House subcommittee. Yesterday, this meeting um, on an election bill that would make it more difficult for Iowans to challenge Donald Trump's place on the 2024 general election ballot. Uh, this wide-ranging election bill would allow federal candidates convicted of felonies to appear on Iowa's ballot. It would ban ballot drop boxes, ban ranked choice voting, and change the deadline for when absentee ballots must be returned to a county auditor uh, to be uh Counted, Wayne. Your your thoughts about this? This is a walkout here, and and I guess this fits into the context here—a wider context of generally Republicans um, uh, redoing election laws. To what end?
2: Uh, well, by tightening the election laws, uh, it makes it harder for some people to vote, and uh, that. Uh, I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the other part of it is that even if if Trump is convicted of an offense and it's it's uncertain yet whether he'll actually come to trial before the election, but this law, if it's passed, would make it very, very difficult uh, to take his name off the ballot. Uh, I I don't think there's much of an effort – Potential successful effort to do that Mm -hmm. but this kind of reinforces that argument
0: yeah and and um, Jeff Kaufman who worked for the president president Trump's presidential campaign in Iowa as a senior advisor says this has quote nothing to do with Trump and his motivation for the bill uh, according to Kaufman is um, is maintaining the highest level of election integrity in in Iowa Uh, Karen your thoughts here
1: well, I I just don't think that that argument holds water. Sorry, that <laughs> um, sorry, it was
0: Bobby Kaufman not Jeff Kaufman. Sorry. Oh, thank you. <laughs>
1: um but but you know, it's it, it still doesn't hold water because, you know, what other federal official uh might be who has been convicted of felonies or who is likely to be convicted from felony, you know, of felonies is likely to be on the Iowa ballot anytime in the foreseeable future. Uh, so yeah, it's about President Trump, but I think it's also a tacit uh, recognition that, in fact, Trump might be um, convicted. Um, and and I think that the argument that people should have absolute freedom of choice to elect whoever they want—that this somehow deprives uh, people of a choice—for um, one thing, you could make that same argument about the eight. A- um you know about the, the the age requirement or the um you know natural born citizen requirement you know so i i happen to think that being convicted of of a felony is disqualifying for the office of president especially when we have a whole lot of really qualified individuals um in both parties who um are not convicted of felonies well, right and you <laughs> that have a
0: could, Right, and and Karen, you have a party that traditionally, at least, has said we are the party of law and order.
1: Exactly right, um, and and I think too that this also just really demonstrates uh, the hold that President Trump and his followers have on the Republican Party today. Uh, that all of the uh, that all of the uh, beliefs. Or the things that the that you could count on the Republicans to stand for are being thrown out the window, and they are just following uh, the you know the the magnetism of former President Trump.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to quote uh, quoted Bobby Kaufman, Representative Bobby Kaufman of of Wilton uh, there, um, uh, but uh, the Democrats in this committee returned to speak with reporters, offering criticisms of the bill. After that subcommittee meeting concluded and after two of them walked out, two Democrats, uh, this uh, from Representative Adam Zabner, a Democrat from Iowa City. Uh, it takes quite a lot of nerve to call a bill an election integrity bill when the point of the bill is to let felons run for office, he said, and particularly someone like Donald Trump who has so little integrity. End of quote by Representative Adam Zabner. Well, let's continue with our Politics Wednesday uh, after a short break. When we come back, uh, let's talk about the Democrats picking up a seat in the U.S. House yesterday in that special election, the implications of that, and what uh, lessons may be there for the general election uh, that Democrats, as well as Republicans, may take note of. With us today, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Karen Kudrowski of Iowa State University, It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River, back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. With us, Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College or two political scientists if you'd like to join our conversation one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred or email us river to river at Iowa dot talking about some state house politics to begin our program and uh, I think Danny and Ankeny listening uh wants to chime in with a comment or a question. Danny, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. I was curious to get uh if there's any commentary on why ranked choice voting got brought up in the recent bill that's gone through the legislature i wasn't surprised with the other changes that are being proposed but i was surprised to see ranked choice voting pop up on there
0: yeah you could danny we could do a whole show on ranked choice voting and and may do that in the future uh, i don't know uh, karen or wayne who who would like to tackle that the basics of Uh, Of why the. Yeah, I can can jump in. Karen, Uh, please.
1: Okay, so for anybody who doesn't know, ranked choice voting means that instead of a voter voter picking one candidate out of a field of, you know, five, six, and whatever it might be, they would actually vote for all the candidates, but they would rank them in order of preference. So if there were five candidates running for an office, they would uh, rank from one five. Now, uh, what we normally do is what's called first past the post, um, which means that whoever gets the most votes wins. And if you have more than two candidates, uh, one of the downfalls of that is that you can end up with a minority winner, somebody who gets a plurality of votes, but not a majority of votes. And for things like city council elections in Iowa, that means that they would have to go to a runoff. Um, so that the eventual winner would, in fact, get a majority of votes. So you end up running essentially two elections. What ranked choice voting allows is that it eliminates the need for a runoff uh, because you would just look at who got the most support, um, you know, after having counting all the first choice votes. You would then look at who might have ranked uh, someone second and so forth, um, and you would drop out those that have the least amount of uh, support. Um, I think the the reason for this, uh, by the way, there is some uh, significant evidence that ranked choice voting benefits women candidates. Um, in the places that have adopted ranked choice voting, uh, we find that women are getting elected. Uh, Alaska has ranked choice voting and even though it's a solidly Republican state they have now using ranked choice voting elected a democratic member to the to you know their at-large house member as a Democrat for the last two um, elections <clears throat> so I think this ended up on there first of all because I think some people don't understand ranked choice voting very well and secondly because I think that Republicans don't like it because it does potentially undermine um, their major- majority, right? Because a lot of people um, might, more people might be encouraged to run, which could then um, split the vote of the majority party and lead to more Democrats getting elected.
0: Mm. Okay, excellent question. Danny and Ankeny, thank you so much. Let's go to Jacqueline in Marion. Jacqueline, welcome to the program. What's on your mind that we've been discussing?
3: Um, it's the transgender bill that's in consideration. The definition of man
0: and woman, yes.
3: Yeah, I am a trans woman. I don't sound like, I, I mean, I don't sound or look anything like the assigned gender I had at birth. But being, a lot of trans people being forced to update their birth certificates for that, after already being able to get it changed, that just, it feels unnecessary and unnecessarily harmful. I mean, mm-hmm. I know a lot of trans people in the state of Iowa who are scared of this bill, yeah. both trans women and men.
0: E- enough to make you rethink living in Iowa or those you have contact with? 100%. You? Yeah.
3: Uh, 100%, yes. My girlfriend, who is also trans, and I are heavily considering moving out of the state because of our governor and mm-hmm. her actions.
0: Jacqueline and Marion, thank you very much for your input. Uh, so important to hear how uh, politics or uh, possible measures to be passed uh, could in- impact Iowans. Uh, Jacqueline and Marion, one 780 9100 Just to clarify, they, there have been versions of this bill. They removed the part of the bill that would have required transgender Iowans to include their sex assigned at birth on their driver's licenses. Sex change information still be, would still be required on transgender Iowans' birth certificates. Okay, let's move on to some uh, news from yesterday. Democrats picking up a seat in the U.S. House. Um, Democrat Tom Swazi won the race to uh, succeed former Republican Representative George Santos, remember, expelled from the House last year. Swazi uh, will serve out the remainder of Santos's term. Despite the dirty tricks, despite the vaunted Nassau County Republican machine, we won. It's time to find common ground and start delivering for the people of the United States of America. The people are watching. They want us to start working together. So our message is very clear. Either get on board or get out of the way. Okay. New Democrat um, elected to the U.S. House, Tom Swasey, won that special election to replace uh, Republican George Santos, of course, that means the slim Republican majority in the House is even slimmer. But, but Wayne, what I wanted to go to you about is a, a takeaway here. I've been reading about is the, the Democrat here, a moderate Democrat, as I as I understand, sort of reflecting a new position on immigration, making mo- the migrant crisis the centerpiece of. His campaign, calling for the president to close the border, uh, went on local news to call for the deportation of a group of migrant men charged with assaulting police officers in Times Square. What do you take away from this special election, Win by a substantial margin?
2: Yeah, there are a couple of things going on here. One, the Republican majority in the House is down to five votes now, which means they can only lose three votes as to get anything through the House. With the impeachment yesterday of Homeland Security Secretary, they won by, Republicans did it by one vote. Tomorrow, they wouldn't have the majority uh, in the House in this election. On the immigrant issue, uh, this district has a lot of immigrants, and the Republicans were making immigration the big case. And the moderate Democrat uh, took advantage of the negotiated proposal between bipartisan proposal in terms of toughening the border uh in uh, in terms of giving foreign aid to ukraine and and uh and israel etc and the republicans were not able to capitalize on that issue and swazi's making immigration a a, a, a democratic issue rather than a republican issue with the Republicans having failed to pass this bipartisan proposal, I think does send a message uh, in terms of the election.
0: Yeah, before Karen comments on immigration, how that story is developing the politics here, I, I wanted to play a little clip yesterday of that news, the House of Representatives voting 20, 214 to 213. One vote <laughs> difference there to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for, quote, willful and sustained systemic refusal to comply with the law in enforcing border policy. As with the previous vote, all four of Iowa's Republican representatives in the House voted in favor of impeachment. Here's Speaker Mike Johnson presiding over that vote.
2: On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 213. The resolution is adopted. Pursue it to Section 2A of House Resolution 996. House Resolution 995 is hereby adopted.
0: Okay. Want to mention here, too, so many things tying into immigration, which is polling now as one of the top, if not, the top issue uh, for voters in this uh, general election year. Last week, the U.S. Senate Republicans remember walking away from that bipartisan border security and immigration deal that was, came after months of painstaking negotiations, siding with the House colleagues, and also uh, the presidential frontrunner, Donald Trump. Karen, your thoughts on, on how immigration is feeding into a lot of um, news issues uh, here and, and policies.
1: Yeah, well, first let me note <clears throat> that um, Rep. Alek Swazi actually defeated um, a Republican woman who was an immigrant herself, mm, um, having yes. immigrated first from Somalia to Israel, she's an Orthodox Jew, and then from uh, Israel to the United States. So, you know, and, and she too, you know, tried to capitalize on the anti-immigration sentiment. So I think, you know, immigration is sort of having a moment right now that um, that there's uh, that again, that the um, influx of of migrants coming across the border is being framed as both, um, you know, a as a threat, um, as something that is. Uh, and it is a threat to the United States for a lot of reasons. What's interesting, though, is that you've seen something of a shift on the part of the Democrats, right? The 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 deal was everything that the Republicans said that they wanted, and then they walked away from it uh, because President Trump told them it wasn't good enough. So this is definitely going to continue to be a political football, and um, it will be an issue in the upcoming election where you know, the Democrats will point to what they see as Republican hypocrisy, and um, Republicans will continue to talk about, you know, what they see as Democrats being, you know, soft on migration and, you know, engaging in catch and release and all these other, um, you know, catchphrases. As for uh, Secretary Mayorkas, the reason that the impeachment vote passed the second time around was that Steve Scalise was not absent. So he was absent in the first effort um, because he was, you know, he's undergoing cancer treatment. And so I guess the uh, Republican leadership didn't do a very good job of vote counting in the final analysis. Um, But this is certainly political theater and symbolic politics at its best. Um, I don't think the Republicans in the House have made a very good case that uh, Secretary Mayorkas is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. Instead, they sort of simply say that that he's bad at his job. Um, but that's different than being criminal, right? That's crimi- not criminal mm-hmm. behavior, and competence is not usually criminal behavior. So uh, he'll remain in office because the Senate will not convict, but it's going to be a huge distraction in the coming months.
0: Join us, one 780 9100 river-to-river at iowapublicradio.org. Karen Kudrowski of Iowa State University, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, and uh, we invite you to, of course, join our conversation. Joe is with us uh, in Dubuque, and I can see on my screen, Joe, you want to raise something that we've talked about numerous weeks here on Politics Day. Go ahead. Welcome to the program.
2: Yeah, thanks. I know this is a little old, but I kind of got a, somewhat of a forward qu- question on it. So when the Supreme Court heard arguments about Trump being eligible to be on the ballot in Colorado because of Article 14, Section 3, I eagerly listened in on the arguments and I was shocked and appalled that the question before them was not whether or not he was valid to be president again. It was just being on the ballot in Colorado, Mm -hmm. kind of like that's the wrong question. Will the Supreme Court answer the right question before the election. Is Trump valid to be on the argument, uh, be on the ballot to be president again?
0: Yeah, and, and I, I think, you know, Joe, you did say, of course, those oral arguments before the Supreme Court taking place a few days ago, but very much present here in the first part of our program, you know, a wide-ranging election bill here in Iowa uh, that would allow federal candidates convicted of felonies to be, appear on Iowa's ballot. Wayne, can you uh, address Joe's question in Dubuque?
2: Well, I, th- I think the problem is, and what the Supreme Court is, is saying, or, or likely saying in its decision, should any should what any one state does be able to influence the whole national election? And if one state can say that it legally disenfranchised or, or, or un- disqualified, a candidate from running for office, doesn't that put a lot of pressure on other states uh, uh, to also disqualify? And to what extent should it be the people who finally decide rather than the court? And that's where I saw the the court uh, going on this. and, and, uh, And I think I can understand the problem.
0: Yeah. Joe, thanks for the question from Dubuque. Um, Related to this, uh, this week, Donald Trump asking the U.S. Supreme Court to keep his January 6th case on hold. Uh, He says uh, it would radically disrupt uh, his uh, um, position there, uh, his reelection bid. He, He wants to block a lower court ruling that he can face trial for trying to overturn the 2020 election. Um, so, uh, Karen, weigh in on this, because here again, as we've talked about numerous times, uh, the justices having a key rule, uh, role in deciding whether and when this Republican frontrunner will, will face a federal criminal trial in Washington.
1: Right. Well, clearly it's within President Trump's um, personal interest to have uh, everything just delayed, right? Delayed and delayed and delayed, right? For one thing, he won't be distracted by having to appear in court or testify, which could be damaging to uh, his campaign. Um, and then also uh, he wouldn't have the inconvenience of being uh, of being, uh convicted while he was still running which what I think would really push forward uh Joe's you know Joe's question which is can a should a convicted felon be allowed to be on the ballot um or is that automatically disqualifying uh and uh but secondly um, I, I also think that this is a huge fundraising ability for Trump. What we have seen is that he raises money off of, you know, this this persecution narrative and the courts being politicized narrative. And as long as he can do that, then, you know, that becomes part of his campaign theme and a way for him to continue to, um, you know, to raise money. And then, of course, I think he's hoping that, you know, if he's elected president, that then there would not be a case going forward, that 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 would definitely, uh, you know, that he would have not immunity, but that there would further delay any criminal prosecution while he was president, because we don't do that Mm. uh, under the DOJ's rules.
0: Okay, Karen and Wayne, please stay put. Uh, We'll have more analysis from Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College after a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Senate passing that Ukraine and Israel aid, some aid there for Taiwan as well. Iowa's Republican U.S. Senators Joni Ernst and Chuck Grassley breaking with their party to vote for that $95 billion in foreign aid Um, that happened early yesterday morning. Um, We'll ask them about that split, what it indicates that they didn't go with the majority of Republicans in the Senate on this vote. When we return, it's River to River from IPR News.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: Back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer on this Politics Wednesday with Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Karen Kodrowski of ISU, our political scientists, as we uh, pick through, have their analysis of as many sort of um, leading uh, state uh, and uh, national and also international uh, news developments in the world of politics. Uh, yesterday, Iowa's Republican U.S. Senators Joni Ernst and Chuck Grassley breaking with their party to vote for a $95 billion foreign aid bill. Uh, 70 to 29, the vote in the U.S. Senate. This kicks the funding over to the U.S. House, where the Speaker, Mike Johnson, said his chamber will not consider the legislation because it does not include border security provisions. Remember, Republicans shot down uh, a compromise package that included a lot of those provisions uh, last week. This package, now passing the Senate, would appropriate $60 billion for Ukraine. Um, it would also send $14 billion in military assistance to Israel, $9 billion to humanitarian assistance to Gaza and elsewhere, nearly $5 billion to defend Taiwan. Wayne, to you, uh, the significance of the Senate passage with this amount of bipartisan support. What do you see here?
2: Well, I think Trump himself contributed to that. Trump is opposed to aid to Ukraine. But he made a mistake last weekend— when, in fact, he linked opposition to aid to America's support for NATO, and essentially saying, if I was asked whether I would support NATO, I would say no, because they're not paying enough. And uh, uh, I think that has instilled a reaction in both Republicans and Democrats, where NATO is at the core of the post-World war II international security system particularly for europe and worried about will america really come to their aid they know trump's been opposed to ukraine but if if the united states doesn't maintain its credibility in terms of defense of europe uh... that makes america of support for europe feel very risky to europeans and then how do they respond to that?
0: Yeah, let's, let's actually listen to the former president, followed by the comments from the current president. This is during a political rally on Saturday, South Carolina, over this past weekend. Former President Trump making a statement that appeared to suggest that if elected to a second term, he would not defend some NATO allies from Russian attack.
4: They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia... Will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got
2: to pay your bills.
0: Now, President Biden yesterday blasting those comments uh, that he would uh, that Trump would encourage Russia to do, uh, quote, whatever the hell they want to to native NATO aligned country. Here's the president.
4: Can you imagine? a former President of the United States saying that. The whole world heard it. the worst thing is, he means it. No other President in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Well, let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb. It's shameful. It's dangerous. It's un-American. When America gives us word, it means something. When we make a commitment, we keep it. And NATO is a sacred commitment. The greatest hope of all those who wish America harm is for NATO to fall apart. And you can be sure that they all cheered when they heard Donald Trump when heard what he said.
0: So, Karen, your analysis here—I heard a, a, a read a quote from some GOP campaign strategist uh, saying, um, "Since Trump is his own worst enemy, he's arguably Biden's best friend." Did? did uh, well we we were you know biden was swamped by unwelcome questions about his age just days ago and then this happens right
1: right and actually i think that president biden's rather forceful condemnation of president trump's comments Um, you know, we're we're very well spoken and very heartfelt and powerful. Uh, But in terms of Trump's comments, um, you know, it's utterly horrifying, uh, because, you know, NATO is really the bedrock of our foreign policy. But it's consistent with what he said, you know, as early as 2015, 2016, when he was running for president the first time, which was that he you know, didn't think that much of NATO. Um, now, he is, of course, misrepresenting how NATO is structured, right? The the issue about paying is not an issue of paying dues like we have dues to the United Nations. It's how much of the gross national product a country spends on its military. And the NATO guideline is 2%. Um, and there are a couple of, uh, you know, countries in NATO that don't spend quite, 2% of their uh, GNP on, um, on defense, but that hardly means that they're slackers. Uh, and I think that the mutual defense pact, and by the way, Section 5 has only been used in response to the 9-11 terrorist attack on the United States where our allies came to our defense um, to take down the, the um, Al-Qaeda um, you know, that we get a lot out of NATO and Trump is simply not recognizing that. But I would really like to hear what my partner in crime here thinks.
0: Yeah, really, Wayne, I, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on, for, for instance, the signals this this the former president's comments send to our NATO allies, also to our adversaries, U.S. adversaries, to Putin specifically. Wayne?
2: Well, certainly in terms of the signals to Europe, which uh, I think this even goes back uh, to before the beginning of the Cold War. Will America really come to our aid if we are attacked at that stage by the Soviet Union? And Trump's remarks over the years, as Karen says, have made Europeans somewhat doubtful. And the Europeans are now giving more to Ukraine than we are. And... Uh, and, and, and if, if Putin were to turn against the U.S., this sends a very poor message to the Ukrainians. In terms of the Russians, I think the message to the Russians is just wait till after the 2024 election. Uh, uh, you can't, the Europeans cannot, can't count on me. Ukraine can't count on me. And if I'm elected, I'm going to be much easier to negotiate with uh, than the Biden administration. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Okay, we'll see how that turns out. Let's, let's stay abroad here. I want to get uh, Wayne your expertise on the Israel-Hamas uh, war. Uh, President Biden, during remarks following a meeting at the White House with King Abdullah of the Second of Jordan, this was on Monday. He spoke on the war between Israel and Hamas. He addressed the current situation in the Palestinian city of Rafah on the Gaza Strip. Remember, this is the southernmost major city. Uh, on the Gaza Strip, uh, the president saying military operation there should not proceed without a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there.
4: As I said yesterday, our military operation of RAFA, they're, uh, they're the major military operation in RAFA, should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Many people there have been displaced, displaced multiple times, fleeing the violence to the north, and now they're packed into Rafah, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. And we've also been clear from the start, we oppose any forced displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. Today, the King and I also discuss in detail how to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza. From the very beginning, my team and I have relentlessly work to get more aid in. I urge Congress for months to make sure that our nation's support for Israel and also includes urgently needed aid for innocent Palestinians. And I've spoken repeatedly with partners across the region, including the King, to help facilitate the flow of such aid in Gaza as much as possible and then to actually get to the people that are, that are needed. We work to get the Rafa crossing open. We work to get Karim Shalom open. And we insist that it remain, remain open, both remain open. We're working to open other routes as well. And we're also working relentlessly to make sure aid workers can get the aid where it's needed once it gets through. Wayne
2: Moyer, your analysis of the president's words there.
0: Uh,
2: I think the most important thing here is the number of casualties that the Palestinians have already suffered. It's somewhere 27, 28,000. Uh, plus a real risk of starvation, certainly malnutrition, and serious harm to children, and many, many, many children in Gaza. And any kind of massive Israeli attack before the people are evacuated would have enormous civilian casualties in addition. And Israel's overall reputation around the world has been badly hurt by this war. And uh this will make it even worse, and I think it will hurt American credibility if you have again an attack on on Rafa without evacuating uh the civilians and will hurt, hurt, help hurt america's image, certainly in the developing world and I don't think we want that, and I don't think Israel really wants that either and I hope the negotiations uh, Will, uh, will succeed at least in arranging some kind of ceasefire to allow the hostages uh, to be released. Uh, and and they're, o- they're ongoing at the moment, and I just hope that they can succeed.
0: Mm-hmm. In the final five minutes with Wayne Moyer and Karen Kandrowski, uh let's go to this, uh, what I think will be our final caller for the hour. Mark is with us in Cedar Falls. Hi, Mark. Uh, what did you want to reference or discuss today?
2: Just in reference to the comments that President Trump had made about uh, supporting NATO allies, I'm curious why your guests think that President Biden or other Democrats haven't pointed out what Dwight Eisenhower or Ronald Reagan might have said about those comments. I'll take my answer off the air.
0: Thanks, Mark. And Cedar Falls, can I toss that over into your corner, Karen?
1: Sure. Yeah. Actually, I think you should call the Biden campaign and uh, (laughs) the White House and make that exact suggestion. I mean, there's um there is absolutely no doubt that the the Republican Party of 15 years ago, you know, if you look at John McCain and Ronald Reagan and so forth, that they would be horrified by the comments that uh former president Trump has made about um NATO and they would also be utterly horrified by the fact that he has expressed um admiration for Um, a dictator, um, a murderous dictator, which is Putin. And they would be horrified by the Republicans' lackluster support for Ukraine. And, you know, thinking about the votes of, you know, Iowa's two senators uh, in favor of the Ukrainian aid package, I think that harkens back to the, you know, strong military. U.S. takes its place in the world as the leader of the free world Kind of role that is really the the traditional Republican doctrine that is being abandoned by uh, Trump and his acolytes.
0: Yeah, and, and so so many you know it, I've heard it sort of mused whether Ronald Reagan, were he alive today, would be allowed in the Republican Party or would be able to function in the Republican Party, uh, Karen, with from a policy perspective, what he represented.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we have seen that Republicans who who follow sort of the traditional Republican ideology have have been made very unwelcome. You know, mm-hmm. with with people like Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney. Uh, Mitt Romney, who was the Republican nominee for president in twenty twelve, has the you know the party turn its back on him. Yeah,
0: Perhaps in the final two minutes, some reflections on the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine coming up. Also, perhaps your thoughts on President per- Putin's first interview with a Western media figure since the invasion. This is a little quote from AP, a, co- a quote of the account here, um, their account. Russian President Vladimir Putin using an interview with former News Fox host Tucker Carlson to push his narrative on the war in Ukraine, urging Washington to recognize Recognized Moscow's interests and pressed Kiev to sit down for talks for more than two hours. A largely largely unchallenged Putin showered Carlson with Russian history and Kremlin talking points. That account from the AP. Wayne, I don't know if you saw the interview. Accounts of the interview. Uh, what did you make of it, or, or just comment on Ukraine as it is two uh, two years after? Yeah, the... well,
2: I th- I think Putin hurt himself in terms of getting any kind of of U.S. support, and uh, and I think has hurt has hurt Trump as well politically. Essentially, he starts off with an hour long monologue about why Ukraine is part of Russia, uh, justifying his invasion, and uh, uh, if anybody had any doubt about the need to support Ukraine, uh, Putin plays into that doubt. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then uh, Carlson doesn't ask any really hard questions.
0: And he doesn't, and he, he doesn't ask Putin about war crimes uh, from Russian troops that <laughs> they've been accused of or about the relentless crackdown on dissent in his own country, does he?
2: Yeah, No, he doesn't. And, and some of the commentary is that he's become Putin's useful idiot to, to go back to Lenin and the use of people from the West to support the original Bolshevik revolution. So I think from, uh, it, it, it was a disaster in uh, terms of those, those who, who uh, uh, have any kind of favorable view left toward Putin.
0: Yeah. Putin said it's up to Washington to stop supplying weapons to Ukraine, which he called uh, a U.S. satellite. Uh, he And persuade Kiev, he said, to negotiate, saying that a deal was the way to end the war. On that point, would the Russian president be correct? Would you assess that a negotiated settlement is, is the way this war will come to an end, Wayne?
2: Uh uh, Putin's idea of a negotiated settlement is certainly to keep at least as much of Ukraine as he already has, and perhaps by waiting out and launching an offensive this summer with a weakened Ukraine, which is not getting aid from the United States, then hopefully then win a larger section of the country. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, well, we've come to the end of this Politics Wednesday edition. Uh, Wayne and Karen, thank you so much for providing your analysis. And uh, we also appreciate the bounty of callers uh, joining us with very interesting comments and questions. Wayne Moyer, professor of political science at Grinnell College. Karen Kodrowski, professor of political science, also director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women and Politics at Iowa State University. In Ames. Karen and Wayne, until next time, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you ben. ben. Today's program was produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from uh, Madeline Willis, Katherine Perkins, and Kate Perez. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.